Thank you so much for today. We thank you for the blessing that it is that we can come boldly before the throne of grace with our concerns, our troubles, the things that we want uh, to be amended, the problems in this world, the problems in our lives. All these things are things that we can interact with you confidently, calmly, and boldly, or as loud as we want, whatever the case may be. We have that freedom in Christ to be able to do that as your priests. Lord, we thank you for all of this, and we thank you just for the opportunity to be in this unique period of time that is the church age where we can do these things. I ask that you help us to understand the unique nature of those things as we're moving forward, Um, not in the study at all in particular, Lord, but rather our own lives, because it is unique. It is wonderful what you've done for us, and I'm grateful personally for that. I ask that you be with us in our studies as we're going through the rapture, looking at the church, and also as we're looking at Revelation. There are a lot of things that are complicated there, and um, even with the clarity that you've provided in your words, some of the things are hard to understand. So I ask that you give us clarity, and I ask that you give us discernment. I pray that you be with us in all of those things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're jumping back into our study of the rapture of the church. Now, We've been in this study for a while now, and um, I was trying to look to see generally the structure of other rapture studies this last week, because I realized um, a lot of people like Andy Woods and a few other people were actually doing like studies of the rapture. Um, I'm never going to, the length of a study is not a sign of its legitimacy, (laughs) Um, but if it were, we would, we'd be doing pretty well because we've been doing this for like 57 weeks now. Um, and not necessarily because, (laughs) again, not necessarily because that's a good thing or that we're trying to make this as long as possible. But when you get into the weeds for the things we believe about the rapture, the issues we have with the topic of imminence or imminency, um, and all of these other things, the arguments against those, it can, it can be, um, yeah, the weeds can get pretty tall. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to be as thorough as possible as we're going through these different things so that we are as equipped as anybody on the street to defend what the Bible has to say about the future in relation to the church. So what we as the church, the body of Christ, can expect for the future. In that respect, um, we can expect to be raptured. Whether we are the ones that are lucky enough to be alive and remaining at the time of the rapture, whether we're the ones who are dead and then rise first and then go to be with the Lord. Either case, we're going to be in the rapture. That is our future. That future is imminent. Again, whether it happens in 20 minutes, 10 seconds, or 20 years, or 100,000 years, that is something the Bible says that we can count on. That's something we can look towards. But more specifically, we believe in this idea that Jesus could come back at any moment right now for his church. There's no preceding event that has to take place before he can take us to go to the Father's house to be with him. In the midst of that, we've been looking at several different arguments, and we've been kind of stuck on this one argument that we've been making our way through, which is, which is a basic um, covenant theology assumption, because that's what it is. It's an assumption that manifests itself in an objection that we would call an opposing argument. Now, and if you, if you believe in covenant theology, 
you basically just believe that there was a covenant of law and a covenant of grace. And so if you believe those things, then you'll notice within those two things that there is no distinction between the, there were just believers in God that were under law. Now there are believers in God that are under grace. They don't make a distinction between the Israel and the church. And so from that perspective, and some covenant theologians actually link this all the way back to Adam, where they will say that Adam and Eve were the first uh, Christian church. There was a very um, well-established covenant theologian, I forget his name, who actually came up with that idea and decided to publish it. So um, he didn't actually receive many objections from the people in his group because they believe there isn't a distinction. But what's interesting is that they also believe there was never a distinction. So this argument that the church and Israel are both going through the tribulation, so why would you say the church is going to be raptured first, makes sense within that context of their framework. So when we're looking at different opposing arguments or arguments in favor, we have to keep in mind where they're coming from in order to know why they're incorrect. I mean, it's easy to know just looking at this. They're pretending the church and Israel are the same thing. This is really easy to interact with. But how they got there is the most important part because that helps us figure out how to best answer that question. So for this one, we do what? We look at who Israel is. We look at who the church is. We're doing it a little bit more thoroughly because, I mean, it's easier to summarize a thorough explanation than it is to try to give an arbitrary off-the-cuff answer. Um, because we try not to do that, we're going through all the work to do this. So to answer this question, again, is super easy and fast to do. Um, but we're not just trying to answer the question. We're trying to show biblically why this the question itself is invalid. So that being said, there were two steps to this. We looked at who the nation of Israel is. We looked at their past, present, future, and we looked at the fact that they had to go through the tribulational period. They absolutely have to be in there because they failed the conditions of the Mosaic Covenant. Because, more specifically, they denied and rejected the king of God's own choosing that God sent to rule the kingdom. And because of that, they're going to be judged. It's not just a judgment of uh, dispersion, not just the judgment of 70 AD. The fact that they're being regathered right now is actually a prophesied judgment because it is a regathering for judgment. Right now, as of right now, today, just under half of the world's population of Jews have been regathered into Jerusalem, which is incredible. Just under half is what I've been told. Um, now, we know the negative side of things, which is the reason for that regathering. Um, you could go into like economics and um, social economics and see exactly what reasons they're doing it right now. But ultimately, God is using those to draw them back in there for a specific purpose. The good news is that even though we know there's going to be a horrific judgment through the tribulational period, there is far more talked about their restoration because the restoration is the important part because that's where God takes this um, remnant of Israel because there's always been a remnant. Right now, the remnant is included in the church um, because they actually believed in the Messiah of God's own choosing. Um, that remnant that goes through the tribulational period who are saved through the tribulation are going to be the ones through whom 
the promises of the four unconditional covenants are brought to their fruition. So we learned a lot about that because it makes a, a big difference as we're trying to figure out how best to answer that question. So it's really easy for us to answer like easily, yeah, Israel has to be in the tribulational period. Duh, of course they have to be there. So we agree with half of the assumption that they're making, which is that Israel is going to be in the tribulational period. Where we differ from them is we understand they have no idea what the church is. Now, try, just try. If you know somebody who, and this might be mean, if you know somebody who doesn't really know a lot about uh, ecclesiology, doesn't really know a lot about what the church is, ask them, what's the church? Just ask, just to see where they're at. Because it, it's, again, if you misunderstand the idea that the church is distinct from Israel, it's also very easy to not really know what the church is. What, what she is, what's the church's goal? Like I asked just for fun, I was on the phone with a friend of mine and I asked him, what is the purpose of the church? What is the church supposed to be doing right now? I got a wide variety of summarized, quick answers that he tried to put together. And that, that's not to disparage him. It's, it's not to, to make him feel bad. But at the end of the day, it's just because there's so much biblical illiteracy in the church like, he could be like, oh, well, Matthew chapter 6 tells me, fill in the blank. Uh, and obviously, if you've studied Matthew chapter 6, you understand that's not a list of objectives the church has to follow. We don't go to Matthew 6 when we're trying to figure out what our church service is supposed to look like. Um, but in any case, all of that being said, when we're looking at these things, we have to know what the church is. And to do that, we need to define the church. So that's what we started doing the last couple weeks. We looked at some different quotes. We looked at the origin of the church. So when God was building his church, God didn't, the church didn't start until the promises Jesus made about the expectant coming of the Holy Spirit to it permanently indwell the church actually happened, which we know happened at Acts chapter 2. And we also know from verses in 1 Corinthians and Colossians that the church, the beginning point when you become a Christian is when you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And so if you were going to be a Christian, obviously you could not have been a Christian before God was doing that on a regular basis in Acts chapter 2. So for the people that were prior to Acts chapter 2 who believed in God would not be considered part of the church, even if they believed in the king of God's own choosing. It can get confusing because people have made it confusing by meshing everything together. So, that being said, we learn a lot about what Jesus is planning to do in this church that he's about to start building in the upper room discourse. We looked at the fact that after the church was made, after chronologically Acts chapter 2, the church and Israel are non-synonymous terms. There is always a distinction. The Bible doesn't say Israel the church, like as if uh, Israel was now an adjective we were adding on to the church, which will be a noun. Um, the Bible doesn't do that. It always holds that distinction between Israel, the Gentiles, and the church. Now, what it also holds, as we looked at a little bit, is a distinction between Israel at large and the believing remnant of Israel, which is not new to the New Testament. That's something that's held throughout the entirety of the Old Testament pertaining to Israel. So everything written about Israel, there's always those who believe and those who don't believe. Those who do not bow the knee to Baal and those who do. Like it's, it's always something that's held and that's something that's always conspicuous. So we looked at a few different things, just char general characteristics of the church. We looked at the fact that 
God gave Jesus as the head of the church. The body of Christ are those individual members which have individual roles and individual parts. And so we also looked at the idea <coughs> that Jews and Gentiles had been reconciled together through the cross. Now, that doesn't mean that the Jews lose their Jewishness or anything about the Gentiles either. It's, it's not a characteristic about their ethnicity. It's rather a statement of inclusion saying that there's nothing the Jew has to do that the Gentile doesn't have to do to be in the church, vice versa. The Gentile doesn't have to jump through hoops to become a member of the church. They're both brought through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and by the foundation of grace that God has made for all of humanity, through faith, they become members of the body of Christ. Now, we looked at that. We also looked at the fact that this reality of equal footing between Jews and Gentiles is a mystery. And that's actually where we're going to start today. So if you can turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, that's where we're going to begin. Very quickly, just on verse 6. It says, to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So through the hearing of the gospel, through believing in that gospel, that good news about Jesus, Jews and Gentiles become fellow members and fellow heirs of this promise. And what we understand is that the church is a mystery. And what's more is that it is, um, and I even have it written here, that the church is distinct to anything that came before it because of the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, this begins at the point of faith. We actually get an allusion to that in the book of John, chapter 20. So that's where I'm going to be jumping right now. It says in John chapter, I'm sorry, not chapter 20, chapter 14, verse 20. I was going to say, I don't remember that being talked about in chapter 20. Um, But yeah, so in John chapter 14, verse 20, still talking about the Holy Spirit. He says, in that day, you will know that I am the Father and you in me and I in you. Now, a lot of people will just skip over that. They'll lose the significance of the fact that we are going to be indwelt like at this point in time, they're expecting this indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so those are just some general characteristics of the church. The biggest thing that we noticed a couple weeks ago is that it is a mystery. Now, we've really harped on this as a church because this is something that is largely, I I think, ignored. I don't think it's missed. I think it's ignored in a lot of different theological circles, the significance of the idea of a mystery. Because if you can push to the side and marginalize the idea that the church is something distinctly new that never existed beforehand, then suddenly the church is different and dispensationalism is correct. So, or dispensations are accurate and real, which whatever, whatever way you want to word it, either way, um, it then becomes a contentious issue. So if they can just make it so that the church is not distinctively new, then they don't have to fight that battle. So, um, We spent a lot of time looking at that. We looked at the fact that, again, Jesus was the head, church is the body. Everybody in the church has an individual member. God gives us gifts to individually equip every person for ministry in their own life so that they can evangelize, disciple those people, 
and then train those people to do the same. It's very simple. So the question then becomes, after we've just summarized, I'm emphasizing that very strongly, summarized what the church is. We also looked at the fact that it's not, um, uh, that it is not a nation. We looked at the fact that this is people from all nations, something else in the past. So those things being said, what has the Bible said to us about the future? Because we didn't have some, we didn't have the history that the nation of Israel had. We, we don't have that. We have a rich church history, some of which isn't great. Um, but at the same time, we don't have all these covenants. We've been given this framework through the New Testament, and that's our basis. We didn't have some special revelation in the 4th century and the 3rd century through Origen and Augustine that told us that we can now spiritualize everything in the Bible. Those are missteps that people made in church history that have led us to the point where we're doing a long study about why other people are wrong. I'm sorry, that's not why we're doing this. Um, But they've made it difficult so that we can't just teach something specifically like this. It now has to be interacted with all of these opposing arguments. Um, So that being said, we have our foundation. So what in that foundation do we have that tells us about the future? Well, we're going to go... Same chapter, John chapter 14. We're going to look at verses. Let's start with verse 6, and then we'll move our way through the book of John. We're going to start with the idea of eternal hell and eternal heaven, because this is something that the book of John says a lot about, is eternity. So it says in chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, who is he talking to? Thomas. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So Jesus is already laying the foundation that Jesus is the avenue to get to the Father. He had just finished, and we're going to get to this a little bit later, um, explaining that they were going to go to the Father's house. So that's really significant because what does that say to us? That says that admission to be part of the rapture is strictly by faith. It's going through Jesus to get to the Father. Again, people will try to marginalize that away too. Um, So that being said, let's go back to John chapter 3. That's where we're going to be reading from next, starting in verse 14. Um, It says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So we get this idea of why Jesus came into the world, but more specifically, what's very thoroughly emphasized in just those four or five verses is the idea that belief, trusting in him, is that condition to be part of this, um, which we saw in John chapter 14 was emphasized that Jesus was this avenue to get through that. But more specifically, it also says what would happen if you don't. And this is somewhere we talked a little bit about this last week, where that would then exempt you from this 
perfect future that he's offering and would put you in eternal judgment. So again, belief being the condition that gets you into eternal life. Now, if we move forward, if you turn the page and go to chapter 5, the same verse, verse 24, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Again, it's thoroughly emphasizing the future reality we have in Christ. And more specifically, it's emphasizing that condition, the condition to be saved. If you move forward to chapter 10, it says in verses 22 through 30, we're going to start in verse 22. We'll actually start in verse 21. It says, then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and then will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world and I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And so they, they were saying to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. And they did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the father. And Jesus said, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing of my own initiative, but I speak these things as the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me, for he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And he spoke these things. Many came to believe in him. Most importantly, relevant to what we're saying, in verse 24, it says, for unless you, be- unless you believe, unless you meet that condition, that I am he, that I am who? That I am Jesus, the son of God, the king of God's own choosing, you will die in your sins. So it's giving us kind of a flip side for what happens if you don't believe. Or at least that's what I'm trying to communicate right now. So if we move to the book of Acts, chapter 16, that's where we're going to be reading from next. It says in uh, verse 30 is where we're going to be starting. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Again, emphasizing that very simple condition that anyone with any sinful background can do in order to become righteous um, judicially before a holy God. If we move to the book of Acts, chapter 8, we're going to keep on that thought train. Starting in verse 37, going to 39. It says, but in these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Again, him talking about uh, trials and tribulations that Christians would go through, I think, towards the end of that chapter. But it still applies long-term, which is that there's nothing, no created thing that could ever separate us from the love of God. Again, Romans chapter 8, not talking about 
the general unbelieving population of people in the earth, talking specifically about Christians in their Christian walk, talking about the guaranteed future we have in Christ. Now, let's move forward to the book of Philippians chapter 1. It says in verse 29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, now here to be in me. Again, we were given that one condition to be in Christ, which in this uh, context is also giving our one condition for persecuting with Christ. So again, there's a flip side to that as well. But that's basically the point that I'm trying to make before we get into what we're promised about the future is that at a bare minimum as Christians, we are promised a future with eternal right eternal life in Christ provided by the father through the Christ, through Christ's sacrifice, through what he did on the cross, we have a guarantee of eternal life. That knowledge is what can largely take us through the tribulations of life as it's uh, spelled out in the book of Philippians. But that being said on that note that we just read in Philippians one verse 29 is that we can also expect persecution that's more on a now basis, but it also would extend to the future. Like throughout our lives, while we're on this earth, we can expect to be persecuted. Um, so on that note, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 4. And it says, within that same vein, starting in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory in God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and of the sinner? Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. I like the point that he made there as he was talking about suffering when he said, make sure you're not suffering because you were sinning or committing a crime, where he said that, um, oh, where is it? I lost it. Yeah, verse 15. Make sure that none of you suffer as a murderer, thief, evildoer, troublesome meddler. But in any case, that's something that we're promised as Christians is that we can look, look forward to suffering, but not look forward to suffering for suffering's sake as many monks of the past have thought was even Martin Luther thought was something that was righteous. Um, but look forward to suffering because of what follows. Look forward to, and in fact, he even linked it to the revelation of Jesus Christ. We looked at that word unveiling, um, could very well 
lead us to believe that this we're referring to the rapture. Like, look forward to that. That's something we can expect, that we can be excited about. Now, if we go forward and we go to 2 Timothy, that's where we're going to be reading from at this point. It's actually back. I say go forward. Um, In the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, it says that indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So, we, we can promise, we've been promised a few things. We've been promised that we are going to be spending our eternity with the Lord. A tremendous promise. But we've also been promised that during this life, in the future, we can also expect that persecution shouldn't be something that's uncommon. Um, as much as uh, we've gotten away with not being persecuted so much in the way that we think about it in the Bible, like, Okay, so this is this is another thing. Most people, when they think of persecution, they think of like Christians in Afghanistan in the middle of a war, or Christians in China who who churches getting sh- shut down. Most of the time, it's the little things. Big persecution tends to draw us closest to the Lord. Little persecutions tend to actually cut us off from fellowship. Um, for whatever reason, it appeals more towards our sin nature. So when we see persecution, it's it's easy to think of it in America as like, oh, those Christians who are living in China. Um, who are suffering persecution or the Christians in Ukraine right now who are getting invaded by the Russians. But at the end of the day, that's not necessarily what it means when it's talking about persecutions. It could more specifically just mean the little things, the little trials in life, the inconveniences, the, oh, you're a Christian, well, you're not going to get the nice parking spot. I don't know, good way to word it. But um, most of the time when you're looking at it, that's, that's largely what it tends to be talking about. Just when you see persecutions, look at the context. It's not necessarily talking about what you'd expect it to be. But in any case, whether big or small, that's something that is promised to the church. That's something we can look forward to. Um, meaning look forward in time to. I'm, I'm not looking forward to being persecuted. <laughs> but I understand that it's a promise that we've been given, and we should hold it um, with as much credence as we do the promises about our eternal life. Because those are things that are promised to the church. Um, very real for the churches that were getting these letters in the first century. Something else to think about too. Now that being said, we have also been promised, and this is one that we've harped on several times in this study, a pr- an exemption from divine wrath. Because we under- but, and this is where it gets very interesting, because we understand that we have an exemption from divine wrath in hell, in the lake of fire, through Believing through our eternal life, we get through being in Christ as part of the church. But this is a different kind of wrath because this is God's wrath uh, on unfaithful, unbelieving humanity through the tribulational period. So let's go ahead and go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. That's going to be, and we've gone here several times through the study, um, but it says, For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Again, that's just a testimony to the Thessalonian church, this young church that had such a drastic change that the testimony of that change spread throughout the nations. But that being said, what were they also doing? They were waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Because again, the people that try to make this a rescue from hell is absolutely surprising. Um, And 
I, I can't think of a way to look at the future and think that that's what's happening. Like Jesus isn't coming at a future time to rescue all the Christians from hell. That happened at the point of faith, at believing, at the efficacy of his sacrifice that he already did in our place. That's, that's already something that happened. When he's talking about rescuing us from the wrath to come, that wrath to come must be talking about something else. Um, we know from the context of the book of 1 Thessalonians that it's referring to the tribulational period that we read a lot about, not talking about the persecutions that the Thessalonian believers were going under if you look through the first few chapters, but rather talking about what he talks about in chapter 5, which is relating to um, the tribulational period. So that, on that note, if we can move to chapter 5, starting in verse 6, it says, So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you also are doing. Now, if we can move to Revelation chapter 3. That's where we're going to read a little bit more about that. We've already read about it. We already talked about it for weeks between, between Kurt and I. Um, I'll call it Revelation 3.10b. Um, it says that, I'll actually start in verse 9. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you because you have kept the word of my perseverance. I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So again, we're given this promise of exemption from that time of testing, from that time of divine judgment on, again, on earth, on those who dwell on the earth, not those who are burning in hell for all eternity, those who dwell on the earth. This is talking about this time of testing that we read about significantly through the book of Revelation. So again, that is our promise concerning that time. This is really significant because of the people that are arguing that the, why would the church get exempted from this time of wrath if Israel is going to have to go through it? Because the Bible says we are exempted from that time of wrath that we know Israel's going through. Because every Israelite who believes in God today is a member of the church. And every single believer of Christ that is in the church, that is an Israelite, is still a believing Jew. They don't be, lose their Jewishness because they become part of a church. Um, that can't be emphasized enough. They are still a Jew. They're just a church member. They will be raptured with us. They will be included with us. Um, but yeah, there are going to be unbelieving Jews who are saved through the tribulational period. And God's people don't lose their Jewishness just because they're members of the church. Super important. But more specifically, as we're looking at these promises in the future, we understand something very significant, which is that we are promised that we will not go through the tribulational period. And if you think about it, like, let's just think about it. Let's just uh, 
theorize for a second. Why is Israel going through it? Well, there's no believing member of Israel who exists at the time of the instigation of the tribulational period. Possibly. I think there are going to be a lot of believing Jews and Gentiles at the start because I think there's going to be a gap between the rapture and the tribulational period. It's possible they could coincide with each other, but there's no biblical requirement that says that the rapture is going to happen roughly at the same time of the trip. I would expect it to, but there's nothing in the Bible that says that it will. And what's more is that there's, especially, and this is important because people mess this up, there's nothing that says that the rapture starts the trip. Because the rapture is what? It's concerning this mystery, this unrevealed thing in the Old Testament, unrevealed thing in the New Testament up until the point that it was revealed. Super important. The tribulational period was very revealed in the Old Testament. We know from Daniel chapter 9 that it starts with the covenant that Antichrist makes with the nation of Israel. That's when the tribulational period starts. And so... It could be 40 years after the rapture where they've all forgotten what just happened because, I mean, if you think about it, people forget 40 years all the time. If you think about it, people forget 60 years all the time, 80 years. I mean, ask somebody about World War I, World War II. Ask somebody about the Holocaust. Ask somebody how many Jews died in the Holocaust. Again, I've asked people a lot of those questions. I asked, I asked three coworkers what Marxism was. None of them knew what Marxism was. It was just so, so funny. Um, public school systems, guys, public school systems. So these were older than me, all of them older than me too. So in any case, um, that being said, we are promised an exemption from divine wrath. Next, the church is also promised in exchange for faithful service in this life, a future of ruling and reigning with Christ in his kingdom after the trip. So this is kind of important. We're going to read these off. We're not going to read all of them because there are quite a bit of them. And we've already gone through most of these when we looked at the Bema Seat Judgment, when we answered the question about what's going to happen after the rapture, before we come back with the Lord in Revelation chapter 19, what, what's going to happen? We'll just read a few of these right now. So if we can go to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Because I, I at least want to finish this slide before the end of the day. And we may not make it that far. So it says in chapter 2, Starting in verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. For not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for us so that we would walk in them. So again, we've said this before, but God didn't save us so that we would just be saved. He saved us so that we would walk in the things that God had prepared before us. Again, that's something to keep in mind as we're looking at this. So moving forward, we go to 2 Thessalonians. We're going to jump around a little bit in chapter 1. It says in chapter 1, starting in verse 11, it says, To this end we also pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling, fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified with you, and you and him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there is a goal in that through walking with him that Christ would be glorified. 
um, that people would see that as a witness is another way to put that. Now, moving back to 1 Corinthians, um, it says, if we go to chapter 3, probably one of the most thorough uh, or complete scripture verses talking about the Bema Seat Judgment, it says, starting in verse 10, that according to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is in, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if any, or Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it will, it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. And if any man's work, which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. And if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. Um, so we're basically given this idea that there are things that we can do that are going to remain that will incur a reward. And there are going to be things that we do that aren't going to incur a reward. Now in first Corinthians chapter I mean, who's he talking to? Is he talking to unbelievers that need to be saved, that need to do things to be, to get a reward salvation? Or is he talking to believers who are saved and who are living unrighteously? And he's trying to correct their behavior by giving them a promise of what will happen if they don't correct their behavior. Book of 1 Corinthians is written to carnal unbelievers. So obviously it's the latter. So that being said, um, we'll read the rest of these uh, the beginning next week. I'm not going to go over. Um, so in any case, that's just something that we kind of have to keep in mind. As we're looking at this, what we're going to spend a little bit of time on next week are the distinctions, which it looks like I don't have control anymore. No, I do. Between the church and Israel. And now uh, we'll look at it next week, but Lewis Sperry Schaefer listed 24 distinctions between the church and Israel and people have built on those or taken away from them for, for ones that were kind of redundant or unclear. Um, but at the end of the day, there are many distinctions between the church and Israel. So again, they are absolutely distinct entities and we've already kind of proven that. But what we're trying to do at this point is we're trying to emphasize not just why they're distinct, but what their futures hold, what, what their construction holds, who they are, what they can expect. So again, that's what I'm trying to do because I think it's going to really help us when we look at different views on the tribulation. I think it's really going to help us when we look at different views on, uh, especially the post-tribulational rapturist and the pre-wrath rapturist, because pre-wrath is a little bit more biblically sound than the post-trib one. Post-trib is just regurgitation of theologians. They agreed in one area, but and they tried to move what they agreed with into a different area. I mean, I'm the way I'm wording it is a little bit confusing, but you'll understand it when we look into why people believe in a post-tribulational rapture when we get to that point in the study. But for now, just keep those things in mind that that's our future. And what's more is what we do in earth is also linked to, or what we do in the kingdom, ruling and reigning with Christ is also linked to our behavior in this life now that we're saved, how we choose to live. So um, let's go to the Lord in prayer.
and we will uh we'll end here it sounds like somebody's done with sunday school so father we thank you so much for what you've done we ask that you be with us today and we also ask that you help us to truly understand what you want us to do in this life we thank you for the promises of eternal life uh, to know that we are not destined for wrath, but life in Christ Jesus, that being in Christ in the church gives us this tremendous blessing. Um, I'm grateful for that. And I know everybody in this room and everybody who is a member of the church that knows what you have done for them and the benefits they get because of it are also grateful. So Lord, I ask that you, um, that you be with us, that you equip us for good works, and that you make it clear what we ought to do as your church. Um, I ask that you be with us also in the service to come. In Jesus' name, amen.